All right, I want to share an old and familiar story today. And it's found in Luke chapter 10. We'll start in verse 25. You can read along with me. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, Jesus replied. How do you read it? And he answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. You answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road. When he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him and passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey brought him to an inn to take care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for the extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? Jesus asked. The expert of the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. We're finishing off this series today called The Currency of the Kingdom. And over the last three weeks, this is the fourth week, we've been talking about how in God's economy, the way that we act and the, way, the things that we value are different than the things of this world. In God's economy, what is valuable and what we, we spend is very different than how the world values things and how the world spends things. And so too is tonight. We want to talk about value, the things that we value as followers of Jesus. And as we look at this story, it's, it's a story that you've probably heard since you were a child, the Good Samaritan, a story that you're probably familiar with. It often it has uh, implications that we should you know, help people who have a flat tire on the side of the road, and there's some good... Uh, moral, some moral goodness that, that's in there for us, but there's also something more going on here. Jesus is talking about a heart issue when it comes to what we value in our relationship with him. And so I want to unpack this story a little bit tonight and look at a couple things, make some observations, and, uh, and hone in on, on one thing that I believe is the currency of the kingdom, and, and hopefully that challenges us as we follow Jesus. First, let's look at the setting the story gets set up because there's an expert of the law who has a question for Jesus, and he has a question about an Old Testament passage. And oftentimes when Jesus is, is telling a story or a parable, it's commentary on something in the Torah or the Old Testament. And that's the same thing that's happening here. Jesus is saying, we're, we're having this debate about what this verse in the Old Testament means. 
But let me tell you a story, because that might help explain this deeper truth of what's going on here. And he has this little back and forth with, with uh, the expert of the law. And, and what we find is that the expert of the law, he, he, he knows what he's talking about, but he's trying to, to, to either trap Jesus or get Jesus to say something um, that might put Jesus in a certain camp. Um, he's kind of you know, snarky about how he does it. Uh, he's respectful, but at the same time, there's, we, we find he's trying to justify himself. He's trying, there's this public debate that's happening between him and Jesus. And that plays into how the story closes out. This guy is a, a, a man who knows the scripture, knows the law, uh, probably is a religious leader. He's a lawyer. And they have this conversation. And as Jesus responds, he responds, as he does so often, with a question and a story to explain this deeper truth of what's happening. And in the setting of the story, he talks about a man who's traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho. And he's traveling on this famous road. That th- This road between Jerusalem and Jericho um, is famous before the time of Jesus, during the time of Jesus, and after the time of Jesus. In fact, one of the early church fathers called this road um, the, the, the bloody road or the red road because it was so dangerous. It, it, it's a road uh, that, that's very narrow and rocky. Uh, there's, there's very steep inclines on it. Um, when, you, when you look at uh, just like Jerusalem is set elevation-wise, um, it's something like 2,300 feet above sea level. And he's going to Jericho, which is set in this basin that's, you know, 1,300 feet below sea level. So there's, there's this massive change in elevation as you travel this road. This road's about 20 miles long. So you're looking at, uh, I'm not good at math, but what is that? Something like 3,600 feet elevation change in 20 miles. Uh, last week, I went up to Flagstaff with a bunch of pastors. And uh, we just wanted to get out of the city, get out of the valley, get up above everything, and so we just went and sat in the woods in camping chairs and prayed for like four hours. And Marcy's like, what are you guys doing? I'm like, we're just going out to the woods and praying. And she's like, boy, you guys are doing that bad, huh? You just want to get away from everything and go sit in the woods. And, and I, last few times I've gone up to an elevation that high, I get this weird elevation sickness. So I was having, you know, visions from God. It was, it was a great trip. But um, it was... Yeah, you, you go through this elevation change, but to get to Flagstaff, we know that's something like, what is that, 160, 200 miles, somewhere in there. On the way, just to, to, to experience that elevation change of about 3,600 miles, that's like going from Phoenix to Sedona. So imagine the elevation change, that journey from going from Phoenix to Sedona. We do that in a car, and if you have kids, it feels like forever, and if not, it's a nice drive. Um, but imagine walking that. You're, you're walking this trail and you're experiencing that elevation change, but it's all happening in 20 miles. This is a steep trail. It's exhausting, and it's dangerous. People get mugged all the time. In fact, you wouldn't travel this trail alone because it's so dangerous. And as Jesus is setting up the story, he says, there's this traveler, and he was on the road from Jerusalem down to Jericho, and he falls into the hands of robbers. If you re- you, it, so let's look at the characters of the story. Like, if you're hearing that, you're like, well, no, duh. What? What is this fool thinking? Like, why would you travel that road alone? Why would you not have people with you? Like, he, that's a foolish thing to do. He kind of had it coming. You just don't do that, which means this man's probably, you know, desperate or had an emergency or has no one else to go with him. But the traveler has decided to travel on this road by himself. And a bunch of people run into him in this story. And again, remember, this is Jesus' parable. This is a, 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 this is a story. But the, the next characters are the priest and the Levite. 
And the priest and the Levite come along. And as you're hearing the story, you might think, if anyone, a godly person, would, would come along, they would probably, you know, stop. And the, the priest doesn't. The priest goes on to the side of the road and keeps on going. The Levite does as well. Why would they do that? Are these just like people who don't care? Well, there's all sorts of speculation that, you know, there's in the Old Testament, you have all of these purity and cleanliness rules, and maybe they're serving in the temple. And if they stop to help this guy that's half dead and he's oozing, you know, blood out of him and you touch him, you've got to go through the ceremonially unclean. You have to social distance for 14 days. We all know what that's like. It's a pain. So, you, like, when you, you hear what this guy's done and, and you're like, well, he's, you know, I get it. But he's left this person without help. So that's, you know, he's actually decided that his own, you know, cleanliness is more important than this man who's hurt. And then the Levite comes along and does the same thing. And, and, you, and you think, well, why, why, does, why wouldn't the Levite help out? There's another rule that if a person's dead and there's a body that's been neglected that's dead, Levites have a special responsibility to bury that person. And for whatever reason, the Levite decides not to. My guess is there's something more important. Uh, we're trying to give them the benefit of the doubt here. But they both pass by without helping this man who is half dead on the road. And then the Samaritan comes by. And as Jesus puts this little detail in, uh, this is kind of like, uh, Jesus does this in off, oftentimes in his stories. It's like an, he's M. Night Shyamalan in the story, is what I call it. Right? Like there's this twist that comes in. And, and you would think, well, the Levi or the priest would be helping, but then I know who's not going to help the Samaritan. He's probably going to, you know, if you're the, 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 in the early Jewish audience, you might be thinking, oh, he's probably going to just finish the job. He'll kill him. If there's anything left to rob, he'll rob him. There was a disdain for the Samaritan, so as Jesus puts this detail into the story, it feels like a twist. Because Jews and Samaritans don't like each other. There's this prejudice there is, uh, there, there are, there's hatred and bitterness that goes back hundreds of years. And if you look at the relationship between the Jews and the Samaritans, you find all the way back to, remember that story of Jonah that we, we just went through like a month ago? The Assyrians con conquer the northern kingdom, and as they repopulate it and resettle it, God's people start to intermarry with these pagan people. And you get this group of Samaritans that emerge. And the, the lower kingdom and the Jewish people cannot stand them. They think they've been contaminated. They think that they are, are lesser than them. And the Samaritans feel that. And the, so the Samaritans, they like, you know, you're demonizing me. What are they going to do? They, they demonize you. It's like, you know, both sides are, are defining the other side by the worst, you know, possible expression of who they are. And you have this cycle of perpetual hatred that starts between these two groups. And it goes on for centuries. They, they would not want to be associated with each other. In fact, when they would travel, Jews would, would go a long way around. The, when, when they were traveling, they would refuse to go through Samaria, so they would go all the way around it so they wouldn't have to be associated with these people. But the Samaritans, they believe that you know, they're still God's people, and the Jews are going to be like that. We're going to find our own place to worship, so they created their own temple. Uh, they had their own, they, they identified the Torah as scripture, but they threw out all these other scriptures that the Jewish people were following. And this just kept, this hatred just kept perpetuating. There was this bigotry towards each other. And, and there was this tension that, that created a political tension between them. It was a religious tension. It was an ethnic tension. These people didn't like each other. They couldn't be around each other. 
There was great disdain. Here's some of the insults. The Jews, they actually referred to Samaritans as a herd, not a nation. Imagine that. They're referring, oh, that, that herd up there? They're not even calling them people, not even humans. Uh, there was one that, uh, an old proverb that says, uh, a piece of bread given by a Samaritan is more unclean than swine's flesh. Like, this is the kind of disdain. Jews, when, you know, they couldn't eat, they couldn't eat pork. And they said that something, this, someone who's touched bread, a Samaritan that's touched it, that's actually worse than, than eating pork. This was unbelievable hatred towards each other. These groups did not like each other. And this story, you, you, we, we hear it and we think, you know, Good Samaritan for us is like a 501c3 nonprofit, right? Like, it loses its sting, but when you realize the tension between these two groups, you realize that Jesus drops this little nugget in there, and it would have been like M. Night Shyamalan in the story. Who's the, wait, what? The, the Samaritan comes along, and, and in the midst of this bigotry and prejudice, the Samaritan is the good guy in this story? Are you kidding me? Jesus goes through this story and says, the Samaritan shows up. And it says in verse 33, he traveled and he came to where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. The Samaritan sees the man half dead, robbed, mugged. When he saw him, he took pity on him. This is a, a very key phrase in the life and teachings of Jesus. And we read over it when we read it out of the theme, the narrative, the context of all of the Gospels. This phrase appears again and again and again in the life and teaching of Jesus. He saw the man and he had pity on him. Pity is another word that may not really communicate what's happening here. As you look at what this word is, uh, in its actual meaning, it's a metaphor and the word is, it's this verb, it's splugnizomai, which comes from this word that is splunk non, and it means literally your bowels, your bowels ache. And so as he looked at this man, his, something inside of him, his bowels ached, it's this metaphor or euphemism, or an English teacher could tell me what this is, um, but it's like us saying that I have, like my heart aches for something. Your heart breaks. Something deep inside of you is in turmoil from something that you've seen. There's this great turmoil that has come from inside. And as the Samaritan sees this man, it says he sees them, and, he, and it's, he, his, he has his, his, he literally, his bowels ache. The splunknon is compassion. It's from the internal organs. It's gut-level compassion. The capacity to feel deep emotions and have empathy Literally, is the bowels yearn for what you've seen. But this compassion always leads to action in the gospel stories. This feeling of heartache or this gut-wrenching feeling of turmoil always moves from a feeling to an action. And we see that with the Samaritan. And we see that with the life of Jesus. And here's what I mean. As you understand kind of the wording that's being used here, you look at the life of Jesus. In Matthew chapter 9, it says, verse 35, Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogue, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. This is, he's starting his ministry, he's going about, he's interacting with people who are suffering. 
And it says, when Jesus saw the crowds, verse 36, when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them, pity, splunking on. His bowels ached for what he saw because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus sees the crowds and he has pity and compassion and it moves him to action. Matthew 14 when Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by a boat privately to a solitary place, kind of like what I was trying to do, go up to the mountains and hide. Um, hearing of this, crowds followed him. They didn't do that to me because, you know. Um, the crowds followed him on foot to, from all the towns. And when Jesus landed, he saw a large crowd, and he had compassion on them, and he healed their sick. And this story goes on, and you find that these people are hungry, and this is, he, he sees them, and he feeds 5,000 people. Matthew 18, uh, one of Jesus' teachings, this phrase appears, the parable of the unmerciful servant. There's this dispute that breaks out about what forgiveness means and how often you should forgive. And Jesus, again, tells this parable where he's explaining this Old Testament passage that they're, they're going through. And as he's telling this parable, he talks about a master. Verse 26, uh, at the same time, the servant fell on his knees uh, before him, before the master, he said, be patient with me. He begged, I will pay you back everything. And the servant's master took pity on him, had compassion on him, and he canceled the debt and let him go. It's a fascinating story if you have time to go back and read that. But the, the, this man has this, this debt, the servant has this debt to the master, and he sees them, and he sees him begging and helpless, and, and he has compassion, and he cancels the debt. The story goes on, Matthew chapter 20. Two blind men come to Jesus. They cry out, Jesus, son of David, have pity on us. They're blind. That, mean, that can mean that these people, these men are cursed. Something has happened. There's all sorts of speculation in their context of why they're blind, but they are blind. And Jesus has compassion on them in verse 34. And he touched their eyes, and immediately they received sight and followed him. Jesus sees them, he has compassion, he acts, he brings about restoration for their eyes. You switch to another gospel in Mark chapter 1, verse 41. You run into this, the, a man with leprosy who comes to him and he begs on his knees and he says, if you're willing, would you make me clean? And it says Jesus was indignant or Jesus was filled with compassion and he reached out his hand and he touched the man, which you can't do because this man is unclean, he's untouchable. Out of compassion, Jesus reaches out, touches the man, and he says, I am willing, be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. Another gospel writer, Luke, where we've started tonight, Luke chapter 7 there's a story about where it's not just Jesus' healing. At this point now, he's actually raising someone from the dead. And there's this widow who, okay, so already life is challenging for her, who has this son. The son would have been someone who, who grew up to provide for her, loses her son. Verse 11 says, soon afterward, Jesus went down to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a large crowd went along with him. And as he approached the town, a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a large crowd from that town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her. It's the same phrase, the spunk nod. His heart went out to her, and he said, don't cry. As we find what happens in the story, he goes and, and raises this child, touches the coffin, the child gets up, restores life. Jesus is raising people from the dead out of compassion. 
The very famous story of the prodigal son, the story that we all know. There's two sons that, that uh, uh, their father, one of them is, you know, we, we consider him the good son, one's the rebel. He takes the inheritance, he runs away. He spends the inheritance. He's living with pigs in the mud and realizes, I had it better at my dad's house. The servants had it better than this. And he returns home and you're wondering what the father's going to say. What the father says is this ongoing theme of compassion. It says in Luke 15, 20, while the father was still a long way off, The father saw him and was filled with compassion. That phrase again, the father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son and he threw his arms around him and he kissed him. Compassion. Compassion is a compelling currency of the kingdom of God. Compassion is a compelling currency of the kingdom of God. It's a feeling that leads to an emotion, that that leads to an action, that leads to transformation. In the life of Jesus, he tells this story, but he's living this out, and we find healing for the sick, feeding for the hungry, canceling debts, restoring dignity to people, giving sight to the blind, touching the untouchable, raising people from the dead, restoring family relationships. Jesus is compassionate. Our God is compassionate. There's this seeing, compassion, action, transformation. In fact, when the writers of the early church, after Jesus dies and rises from the dead, are writing to the early church, 1 John chapter 3, this is a defining characteristic of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. John says, this is how we know what love is. Christ laid down his life for us out of his compassion. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but does not have pity on them, that's that word again, compassion. How can the love of God be in that person? This is a defining mark of a follower of Jesus. You see and you respond with compassion, which leads to action. It goes on to say, dear children, let us not love with words, but or speech, but with action and truth. Compassion is this compelling currency of the kingdom. I love that the Samaritan does this, and as he does it, there's no one else around. He doesn't really you know, look for credit. He's doing this because something inside of him has hurt for this man who's been mugged. What's interesting is we, I, C.S. Lewis has this quote that has been When I've been thinking about compassion, he says this about integrity, right? Integrity is doing the right thing when no one else is watching or doing the right thing when no one else is around. That's what integrity is. But but I've been thinking about this in an interesting way. That's what compassion is, too. Compassion is doing the right thing because your heart has been shaped by God. Doing the right thing when no one else is around, even when it may work to your disadvantage. For the priest, the Levite, they could be righteous and holy. They could do all the things that they're supposed to do, all the rituals that they're supposed to do, perform their responsibilities, and here they have a moment to be compassionate and they move to the other side of the road and walk by. Compassion is doing the right thing when no one else is watching, even when it may work to your disadvantage. The story ends with Jesus asking a question. Verse 36 
He says, which of these do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? Like, this is a total, like, gotcha moment. Like, I don't think Jesus is, like, trying to, like, catch him in this, but he totally catches him in this, right? Which of the three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robber? Going back to that question, who is my neighbor? And the expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. He can't even say Samaritan. There's too much tension there. But he realizes what's happened here. As Jesus responds to this question, it's the Samaritan who sets aside bigotry and prejudice to respond to suffering. It's the Samaritan who is being the neighbor. Instead of asking, who is my neighbor, Jesus brings up this question, who acted as a neighbor? And that completely flips the script on the lawyer. I think we have to ask the question, can we recognize someone like the hated Samaritan as our neighbor? Because if you can't, you might get left for dead. Can you recognize someone like the Samaritan as a neighbor? This is a story that inspires us to good works, and yet it also does something inside of our heart. What Jesus is here for, to save the lost, to engage those who are suffering deeply. And we have all sorts of titles. We have all sorts of things that we think make us right with God. What makes us right is his compassion towards us. And that transforms us to be compassionate to other people. I love N.T. Wright's words commentating on this passage and his commentary called Luke for Everyone. He says, what is at stake then and now is the question of whether we will use the God-given revelation of love and grace as a way of boosting our own sense of isolated security and purity or whether we will see it as a call to, and a challenge to extend that love and grace to the whole world. No church, no Christian can remain content with easy definitions which allow us to watch most of the world lying half dead in the road. Today's preachers and today's defenders of the gospel must find fresh ways of telling the story of God's love, which will do for our day what this brilliant parable did for Jesus' first hearers. The story gets to us. And if you're like me, you know who I identify with is, you know, the priest, because I'm a pastor and work in a church. It's different. With all of the things that are happening in the world, with all of the prejudice, all the bigotry, all the demonizing of the other, are we able to love people who we despise, who we disdain? Are we able to engage them as humans made in the image of God? Because Jesus does. This is the invitation. If you're going to follow Jesus, to be the kind of people that love others in the midst of the things that we don't like about them or the things that they've done to us, it can only happen through compassion. Charles Stanley talks about how this compassion, it, it, the courtesy of this kingdom moves the Samaritan. The actions the Samaritan takes, he opens his eyes to see people as Jesus sees them. 
He opens his heart to feel and have his heart break for the things that break the heart of God. He opens his hand. He touches something that is someone that is untouchable. He opens his wallet, uses his own resources to meet a need. He opens his schedule and makes himself available. Even though this is a huge disruption, he's open. Compassion is compelling currency of the kingdom of God. We're called to be compassionate people, to feel this deep inside. So the question today as we get ready to celebrate Thanksgiving in a weird year full of anger and hate and uncertainty and blame, how are we going to spend our compassion? How are we going to be compassionate towards others? To the proverbial Samaritan or to receive it from the proverbial Samaritan in our life? Is compassion a defining characteristic of how we live, how we engage others? Do we see, do we feel, do we act? How will you spend your compassion? As we close out this series, we've been talking a lot about this God's economy what we value, what we spend, gratitude, generosity, hope and trust, and compassion on the currencies of the kingdom, which cause us to live very differently than how the world lives. May we be people who value those currencies. Let's pray. Lord, thanks so much for these old stories. How you deal with our hearts with them. And as we move through them slowly, we see different truths that you invite us to. You challenge us in different ways, Lord, that break us out of our routine break us out of our narratives. These stories hit us in ways that are radical and also in ways that remind us that this is where true life is found. We're humbled in ways when we see the priest and the Levite and are reminded that as religious people and religious leaders we can miss. We're humbled to see how people that we wouldn't expect it can be used by you. Lord, as we scan out and look at just your life, this constant theme of seeing, having compassion, and acting, we ask that that would be evident in our life, if you would piece together the stories, there would be this constant theme, that we'd see people as you see them, that we would feel the pain that you feel, that we would be moved to love. Lord, we're grateful for your love for us. We give you this time now in your sons and we pray.